Hello and welcome to the CRV Podcast. I'm Jeff Wright, one of the regular contributors to the CRV website. On this episode, Jared Longshore, Vice President of Founders Ministries and Associate Pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, returns to talk to Chris Bolt about the movement called New Calvinism, its overlap with Christian celebrity culture, and ways the New Calvinism laid the groundwork for the social justice movement. You may remember Jared from our September 10, 2020 episode titled By What Standard? If you haven't listened to that episode, I think you will enjoy it as well. All right, let's get going on Chris's conversation with Jared Longshore. Welcome to the CRV Podcast. This is Chris Bolt, again, filling in for Jeff Wright. Today, we have a very special guest, Jared Longshore. He is known for his work with Founders Ministries. And today, Jared and I are going to be discussing the new Calvinism. Uh, This may not wind up the way that you think it will. Uh, And so we want to define some terms and talk about some things that have happened, I'd say, roughly the past 10 years or so, 10 or 15 years uh, within Christianity, within evangelicalism, and and even within the Southern Baptist Convention. But Jared, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Enjoying uh, sunny Southwest Florida. Good deal. Well, Jared, there are several books on this topic. One of them is by uh, Josh Bice. Is that how you pronounce his name? Do you know? Uh, Yes, Bice. I've not read that book, so apologies to Josh. And we may be talking about something completely different today. I don't really know until I get a hold of that book. There was another book called New Calvinism, and it it goes through and talks about some of the the pros and cons of New Calvinism, uh, as I recall. It's been several years since I've read that book. I don't have it accessible right now. So uh, we are not formally uh, commenting on anything that's in those publications. Jared, how would you understand what we might call the New Calvinism? And with that, uh, because you are associated with Founders Ministries, and people know that that is devoted to 1689 confessionalism. What is the New Calvinism? How how do you see it differing from 1689 confessionalism? Yeah, well, you know, Founders is the old Calvinism. <laughs> That's probably what we are. Um, but when uh, if what is New Calvinism? There, Calvinism really sparked up uh, how many years ago? Probably like 15 years ago now, 20 years ago, probably somewhere between 12 and 18 years ago, I'm guessing. But I remember, I think it even made it in, I don't know if it was Time Magazine or somewhere big. And I think Colin Hansen was associated with that somewhat, maybe the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Hansen wrote Young, Restless, and Reformed. And he had this movement. He had Acts 29 was was another kind of name there. And she had a lot of Southern Baptists that Calvinism was growing among Southern Baptists. You have John Piper is a kind of a big figure. Uh, Wayne Grudem and the systematic theology is probably a part of that. But you had this whole um, kind of recovery of Calvinism, probably focusing mostly on Calvinistic soteriology rather than a broader Reformed doctrine. But um, yeah, that became uh, a thing increased in evangelicalism. It kind of had a just trans-denominational. So you had the kind of Presbyterians involved, Baptists involved. You had um, a charismatic emphasis as well. So that was a thing. It's I'm assuming it feels like it's shattered into a, a, a lot of pieces now and kind of slowed down or gone. That's just my 
rough take on it. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And that that's not exactly the same as 1689 Calvinism, though, is it? I, I mean, is there a sense in which the category of Reformed is broader, uh, maybe encompassing other things, broader than New Calvinism? Yeah, well, when you refer to 1689, you're referring to a year, and that certainly you know is not not new. Uh, we're talking about the 17th century and in England after the Westminster Confession of Faith was formed, there were Baptists in London who very much their confession and, but they wanted to tweak it and they did. And that is the 1689 confession or sometimes called the second London confession of faith. And so you do have those who are, who would say, well, they either hold to the 1689 or perhaps call themselves reformed Baptists, um, or probably call themselves a lot of things. Uh, reformed Baptists can have uh, different connotations as well, but there is a, there is a, a deeper and more robust, um, Calvinistic practice than you would have in just New Calvinism. You know, I think New Calvinism, one of the main things was a uh, Calvinistic soteriology, so sovereign grace and salvation. But if you're talking about confessionalism, so do you actually hold to a confession? Does your church hold to a confession to be leaders in the church? Do you have to sign off on a confession? That's one uh, piece that's deeper. Uh, you're going to get into covenant theology. So how do you understand uh, the covenants that God has made uh, that we see revealed to us in Scripture? That's going to have a uh, um, a deeper impact than just the new Calvinism. Uh, you get in stuff like the regulative principle, uh, issues of law and gospel. Um, the the, um, the Sabbath is going to be a, a huge deal there as well. So um, yeah, there's going to be a deeper, broader um, reformed theology than what you found in the new Calvinist movement. I'm sure that uh, different people would answer this next question differently, depending upon whether or not they subscribe to a Calvinist soteriology. What would you think are some of the positives? What are some of the good things uh, that we obtained through this resurgence of, of Calvinism in the so-called New Calvinism? Well, I do think there were a lot of good things um, back then. There were, there were things to be uh, hopeful for the way that at least um, I talk about it now with a lot of guys is that that it was it was good it just wasn't deep enough but um, there was some there was some sweet unity I think that that happened you know with guys as they came to understand uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation the sovereignty of God uh, is uh, was a important thing to recover and that um, that big God theology that people talked about was was good. There was a devotional spirit to it. I believe there was a real devotional. Um, there was love to God and love to Christ and glorying in uh, God's salvation of us, his election of us, unconditional election, um, limited atonement, those kinds of things. So there was just a lot, a lot there. I think joy uh, was a marker, you know, Piper brought that flavor and, um, you, you sensed that. And, you know, I wonder, I'm, I'm kind of on the skinny branches here, but, uh, it seems to be when, when it came to cultural engagement, that was, that was where things went sideways, um, uh, because it was, 
call it a philosophy of evangelism or uh, public witness or how do you disciple the nations? Um, it seemed that that's where things went squirrely. Yeah, and you're going to to have to help me out on that one in a moment. Uh, I think that you're going to be a, a rich source of information on that topic in particular. Uh, I, I want to back up one step and then come back to what you just said. So I, I recall um, seeing a video clip of John MacArthur making these comments about the so-called Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. I forget who in particular he mentioned or, or what movement. I think he called it YRR. You know, he made these comments about various characteristics of that movement. And then he said, they don't have an ecclesiology. And I, I remember being so irritated by that. I thought, okay, MacArthur, he just, he's not really sure what he's talking about. He's, he's getting older, you know, this sort of thing, which is common. Uh, with a lot of guys when they hear things from John MacArthur that they don't initially like, right? But it turns out I think he was right. Um, would you agree with that? Um, it's interesting. I don't remember hearing that back when it there certainly was not an ecclesiology. And there, there's other things that there that weren't there. Again, I do think it was really a heavily soteriological um, movement as as I think about it. And in one sense, if you're saying they didn't have an ecclesiology because it was like a trans-denominational movement, so you had Presbyterians and Baptists who differ on their ecclesiology, and then you had a charismatic flavor that differs on theology as well, um, That then that's certainly true. And if MacArthur meant more by that, like there's just not enough focus on um, on the church and what it means, what the nature and purpose of the church and the operation of the church. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's there, too. So the, I think it makes sense on both counts. And I don't think that's the only thing that was missing, but I'd, I'd say that was missing. Well, we talked about some of the positives of the new Calvinism. And of course, uh, I just took a swipe via MacArthur, what would you say, just generally speaking, you mentioned cultural engagement a moment ago. I want to get to the particulars of that a little bit later on, but uh, what would you say in general? What, what do you mean with regard to cultural engagement? And can you maybe talk about some of the negatives of the new Calvinism then? Well, if I start with maybe reflecting, you know, and again, I don't want to set myself up as some kind of you know, overseer of the new Calvinist movement. So I, I was, <laughs> I remember going to T4G, the early T4Gs and just thinking they were all that in a bag of chips. I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. We're singing these wonderful songs, interestingly by Charles Wesley, but Hey, you know, we all love that. It makes sense. Bunch of Calvinists singing Charles Wesley. And, um, I remember sitting with one of the older, um, leaders. And he was grateful for my enthusiasm, but he wasn't quite as enthusiastic. He was enthusiastic. He just, his concern was, I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned. I'm a little concerned. This isn't deep enough, you know, like we're not deep enough in doctrine. And so I, I would probably, I've already said, you know, the social engagements where it went wrong, but the social, maybe the social engagement could be considered as when it went wrong. Like when we discovered that we didn't have enough Bible, like, you know, we really should have, like, we really should have been reading the KJV, you know, that kind of thing. If you had that going on, or you had your systematics nailed down by Bob Inc., it's like that, then you would have 
been able to accomplish what you were trying to accomplish. So, and that's just a reality of life. I mean, what did Paul tell Timothy? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You do have to watch it closely and you don't ever get to stop that. So the Jesus, you know, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy stuff. Um, that it's easy to look at that and go, okay, I mean, cool guys are young and they're wearing shirts that say Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy. And yet that does expose some of the superficiality of it. It's like, there's nothing wrong with shirts. I like shirts. We sell shirts at founders.org. You can buy them. Um, but too much of a focus on things that are not doctrinal. And then that in all movements, that kind of second wave, the first people like shed blood over coming to uh, the doctrines of grace. And then the next the next generation just inherits it and doesn't uh, doesn't know how to answer the objections, doesn't know how to um, ground some of the assertions that are made. They just think that this is the way it goes. So so doctrinal depth. And then uh, and then, yeah, when it came to engagement, there was a um, there were some faulty things going on in the way that we understood uh, the church and the world and uh, Christ and culture. Yeah. You know, you mentioned we should have been reading more of the KJV and this sort of thing. You know, when we're not focused on scripture, when we're not focused on robust ecclesiology or, uh, you know, issues like covenant theology and confessionalism and or we're not tied to a confession and that sort of thing, uh, we tend, I think, to replace all of that. You know, we're we're wired to worship, right? As human beings, we're created in God's image. And, and God has set the world up in particular ways to follow uh, and order and all of that sort of thing. And so even when it comes to the, the particularities of our religious worship uh, of God and, and the way that that plays out in discipleship and these sorts of things, I think when we remove God and his, I'm not saying that new Calvinists are atheists or something, but when we remove an emphasis on, on God, uh, his worship, his word, and these sorts of things from the equation, we tend to then replace it with something else, right? And so I do wonder, you're talking about the superficiality, because of a lack of emphasis on what I would consider more traditional Reformed theology, and an overemphasis maybe on uh, soteriological concerns. I think because of that, that thinning out of, um, of theology there, we tended to fill in the gaps with an emphasis on, for example, uh, celebrity Christian pastor culture, um, you know, that that later came to be known as Big Eva, you know, the ministry industrial complex. This is the sort of stuff that I grew up with as a as a young believer growing up near Liberty University. Uh, you know, there there was a celebrity culture surrounding all of that. Now, it was a distinct celebrity culture from what we see in the new Calvinism. But could, could you comment maybe on that phenomenon, the, the idea of celebrity Christian culture, Big Eva, the ministry industrial complex? Do you see that overlap with new Calvinism? Yeah, well, it certainly was a thing. And there's just no doubt that it was a thing. So I know Carl Truman has lamented that, not only lamented the big Eva, but he's lamented the celebrity culture. And I think he's right about it. A lot of people knew that it wasn't, you know, it's like, this isn't right, but you know, what do you, how do you, how do you correct it? And uh, so there was, in one sense, it's just immaturity. There's just immaturity. So 
um, follow me as I follow Christ. And uh, we should learn from looking back. We should make sure that we we can follow people by all means. I mean, I thank God for our heroes of the faith. And and then maybe that Hebrews 11 feel, you know, that um, these are those who have gone before us and they've charted the way. But remember, the faith is always in Christ and the glory is always to Christ. So certainly um, there was a problem with celebrity culture and we should make sure we learn the lessons from it to fix our eyes upon Jesus and then follow others as they follow him. Yeah, uh, I remember Carl Truman being at one of the T4G conferences, and uh, he had been invited to bring some of his objections to the table. And uh, he was on a panel discussion. I remember him looking up. It was in the Yum Center there in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I believe it's Orkin. I can't remember, but uh, Orkin Pest Control. So OPC. And I remember he looked up and he said, well, it's good to see that the OPC is represented here today (laughs) as the pest control company. But, um, you know, one of the things that is kind of terrifying to me really, as I look at at the sinfulness of my own heart and the immaturity, uh, some of which you were just referencing, and as I look at this on a grander scale with a movement like the New Calvinism, uh, one of the things that's terrifying to me really is how love and adoration for a particular teacher or pastor, preacher, that can lead you in really good directions. There's no doubt about that. But it can also lead you in really bad directions. And so kind of piggybacking off that last part of our discussion then on celebrity Christian culture and whatnot, what ways, in what ways might New Calvinism have laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now with, for lack of a better term, woke Christianity, the social justice movement? You mentioned earlier that at the beginning of the interview here that uh, you thought New Calvinism might be kind of splintered and fragmented at this point. Um, can you maybe talk about those those things in relation to one another? Yeah, you know, it's um, a question worth considering. I want to make sure I'm thinking rightly about it. There, I do believe there's a connection that seems to be, I know, a lot of people were looking at founders and saying like, um, is this what Calvinism does? Like so, the the movement towards our social justice problems that we're facing, uh, it really does seem like that has sprung in the church. It's the the young Calvinists have been uh, more caught up in that than the um, traditionalist kind of folks within the SBC. And so, on, in the one sense, you had some of the young Calvinists that um, greatly respected founders and would say things like, "You know, we got we grew up on founders, and and uh, aren't you aren't you happy? Because look, I mean, there's a lot of Calvinists on all these positions of power in the Southern Baptist Convention. Aren't you happy?" And <laughs> you know, I served with Tom here, both founders and Grace, and he's like. No, I'm not happy. This isn't what this isn't what we're we've been labor laboring for when you talk about reformation. It, it wasn't that we would become secular and adopt the principles of the world, which is what it appears at least is happening to some degree and is a significant threat and nobody's seeing it. Um so that was a uh, fascinating deal. And then it was like there's some traditionalists that are like, you know, well, we don't uh, we don't like the Calvinism, but uh, we we can see the um, we see that we don't want to be 
affirming, you know, tools that Mark's created uh, as good analytical lenses to understand what's going on in the world. (laughs) That was like fascinating to me. So, um, again, the, the main line that I see from the new Calvinism was this emphasis to go into the world and go into the city. And it just seems like we, um, got worldly. At least three thoughts following up on that. That's uh, that is fascinating. And I, I hope that's enlightening for some of our listeners as well. I, I was talking to someone one day regarding a particular controversy in the SBC and founders came up during that discussion. And I just outright asked, I said, what do you think founders wants? What do you think is driving uh, this particular decision? And they suggested, well, uh, perhaps it's the love of power and losing power. And I said, well, when has Tom Ascall ever had power in the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, in any formal way? And they said, well, that's odd, because I thought the Southern Baptist Convention was essentially Calvinist. Of course, the SBC, we're all over the map on that particular question. But I said, what you're referring to is the new Calvinism. And uh, what you're seeing coming up through some of the younger people is not the same type of Calvinism that Founders was promoting. That's one of the things that came to mind as you were talking about that a moment ago. But but also, there are people who have come to me and and talked about the decisions that they've made with regard to the SBC, uh, the way that they may have voted on this or that thing. Uh, Those decisions were partly determined by their wanting to take more seriously the principles that were behind the new Calvinist movement. And now that they've made those decisions, they're looking back on them. Now that they've cast their votes, they're looking back on those and they're saying, I kind of regret what I did. Uh, I have a friend who would say Calvinism has been the reason that the SBC is going into some of these problems that that it's having right now because it, it served as this sort of surface issue that had an appeal for a lot of the younger generation. And now things have shifted in a bad way, which is interesting, too, when we look at some of the alliances would be the word, uh, some of the new alliances that have formed uh, between, for example, what we would consider the old guard of the SBC uh, and a group like Founders. So anyway, those are just three follow up thoughts I kind of had on some of what you said there. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of that, too, or if you could comment on that or not. Well, yeah, none of that surprises me. I mean, kind of makes sense. And um, people that are looking in on the SBC, it, it is a it's a wild place, so it's hard to understand. Um, and uh, but yeah, there has been Calvinism was certainly on the increase, but it, again, it was more of a probably soteriological Calvinism, and uh, that does seem to be where uh, a good bit of the um, the social justice problems have arisen. And so, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating time to be alive. That's for sure. Well, Jared, I appreciate you coming on uh, to the podcast and just kind of helping me iron out some of the thoughts that I've had regarding this topic. Actually, I want to get back to something you mentioned a moment ago, because I think you may have more to say about this. And this can be, you know, the last thing we address here and then we'll we'll uh, call it done. You had mentioned earlier the cultural engagement. Maybe we can come back to that and, and talk about the younger generation regarding cultural engagement. And even with respect to the Southern Baptist Convention, what do you see going on there? I know that you've discussed before for some things about uh, love for the city versus these other models and whatnot. What kind of comments would you leave our listeners with in that regard? Yeah, in a nutshell, and I do think that I'm glad the way you set that up. In a nutshell, I believe 
that 15 years ago or so, um, the Southern Baptist Convention was big, still is big, huge denomination, uh, conservative in that we got a confessional commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture, um, very much about the gospel and the Great Commission, but had no had a massive problem with a division between the sacred and the secular. It still does, but did then. And so had a massive problem with the lordship of Christ over all things, right? So not just over the sacred things. And I believe that a lot of the young guys that were Southern Baptists saw that and they wanted to rectify it. They wanted to, they wanted to uh, make disciples of all peoples and in line with the Great Commission emphasis that is the Southern Baptist Convention. They went out um, and tried to live in the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the God of this city thing. Um, and so they they were right to see that there was a problem, that the, that the Southern Baptist Convention was not actually dealing with the issues and there was just a lot of pragmatism and uh, they went out and they weren't deep enough doctrinally. And so it has turned into this um, social justice problem, worldly thinking and worldly philosophy. So what I think you have now is you have that has really increased and even risen to the top levels of leadership. So it's not over the last 10, 15 years. It's not it's no longer just some of the young guys. I mean, now these guys are all poised to take over positions of leadership. And a lot of it's coming from the mega churches, which are infected with pragmatism, which isn't terribly uh, different from Marxism when it comes to the materialistic worldview that is so I know there's differences, but you're still dealing with a materialistic, uh, humanistic understanding of the world. Read Schaefer on Christian Manifesto. You'll see that what I'm talking about there. So um, in one sense, I've said what you kind of have going on right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is you kind of have like Marx in a fight with John Dewey. You've got Marxism battling kind of an American pragmatism. And they're both, they both have the problem of being materialistic, humanistic, and secular, and then trying to find a way to fit Christianity into that. And so what we need to do and what we're laboring for at Founders is uh, blowing all of that up and seeing that the that Jesus Christ really is king of kings. He's king of governors. Um, he is ruler of all, uh, all of Christ for all of life. And then there is a depth to that. There is a confessionalism to that that will be like ballast that will not um, result in what occurred with the kind of young Calvinistic impulse where it became worldly. So in some ways, you you want to correct the old guard that really has been irrelevant and just kind of when they try to go out and do something in culture, they do like make America great again, Sunday morning service with an American flag and stuff. And like sing that song in their church. It's like, no, that's not it. Like you can see the division of the sacred and the secular and you go out and you try to apply the word of God to the world and you end up just doing whatever, whatever the secularists are doing. You got to correct that. And then hopefully disciple up the, the younger generation 
and say, you know, you were right about some things, but you weren't nearly deep enough in your doctrine and you need to own that and be humble and grow in that. And then, um, model, what does it look like to actually wield the sword of the spirit as we're told to do? To take up that sword of the spirit. So a lot of this is what we're trying to do with the wield the sword project. We have episodes that are going to be released very soon. We're going to kind of have a string of episodes running over probably the next three, four months. And the impetus for that project was the fact that you have this whole convention of churches with the Southern Baptist Convention that confesses inerrancy. That was the big battle. It's like conservative resurgence. We're worthy inerrantists. But uh, they're not actually doing the word. They're not doing that inerrant word. They're not. They're taking it and they're preaching it in a way that the LGBTQ community can accept and still think that we're their friends. Uh, but we're not actually wielding the sword to the issues of the day. Okay, many thanks to Jared Longshore for returning to the podcast and giving us more of his time. Check the show notes for links to Jared's social media. You'll find links to Chris Bolt's social media there too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CRV Podcast. If you have enjoyed the show, we would appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, as well as telling a friend about our podcast. For all the folks at CRV, this is Jeff Wright, wishing you all the best in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 